Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. Our text this morning will begin in verse 19. And I believe it's best to interpret the parable that we're going to be considering this morning in the context of what we have been considering in recent weeks or even months in some of these back to the teachings and to the events that Luke records for us in chapters 15 and 16 in particular. Now, back in chapter 15, we had just if you want to flip back very quickly there, you had the ungodly or the ungodlike attitude of the Pharisees toward the people at general, toward those who they classified simply as sinners. And so in response to that, as Jesus it says there in verse 2 of chapter 15, the Pharisees and the scribes, they began to grumble saying, this man, speaking of Christ, receives sinners and eats with them. And in response to that, Jesus gives the parables of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son and his older brother, which is in fact the lost son. So Jesus' response to the grumblings of the Pharisees regarding those that were coming to him, and Jesus was in fact receiving, Jesus makes his message very clear. Not only do I receive such, I pursue such. I go after such. That is the heart of God for sinners. And then in chapter 16, it began with the, the parable of the unrighteous steward. And there we see the wrong and the destructive attitude toward or regarding the use of material wealth. And so Jesus gives the parable there of the unrighteous steward, beginning in verse 1, which leads to the exhortation in chapter 16 that he gives in verse 9. It's really the, the summation of the parable there when Jesus says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, when the wealth fails, when the resources of this earth and of this life fail you, in other words, when you die, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. And so, not going into all the the details of explain, but just simply meaning this, that Christ here calls for those who follow after him to use the material wealth and their resources in such a manner that it demonstrates that you, in fact, have a place that you are welcomed in heaven when you die. And so Luke continues on in his account here by describing verse 14 the Pharisees as the lovers of money. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. And in the context here, right on the heels of verse 13, where there it speaks of that you cannot serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot love God and wealth. So when Luke classifies the Pharisees as lovers of money in verse 14, he is further saying of them, they are haters and despisers of God, according to what Jesus says in verse 
13. So our text today is the dealings of a very wealthy man with his wealth, but also in his treatment of his fellow man, Lazarus. Begin reading with me here in verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony." And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Well, there certainly is no greater authority on eternal destinies than Jesus himself, of course, speaking as God who would know such things. And in fact, the idea of eternal destinies is is a dominant theme in the teachings of Jesus. If you were to go through the Gospels, you would be probably surprised if you just began to take note about the times that Jesus references eternity. He references even the what we call the consummation of the kingdom of God, believing that the kingdom of God was inaugurated by His coming. But the time of consummation, when it's brought to its, its full glory, He speaks often of that. He speaks often of judgment. Often of one's eternal state. And He's not hesitant. In fact, you find more in Jesus' teaching regarding one's ruin and destruction and hell than you do about heaven. So it's something that you find in the the words, the teaching of Jesus as recorded for us in the scriptures. It's very common. 
And hence, if there is no greater authority than Christ on such things, then we do well to hear what Jesus says. What, in fact, Jesus is revealing to us about such matters and realities. Now, let me just explain one thing just before we get into this text with any depth. That is, I do, I do see this as a parable. Now, there is debate among commentators and Bible scholars over the years of whether this is a parable or not, because it has some elements that seem that they're not consistent with other parables. Number one, it's not identified per se as a parable, which that's not unique. Another unique feature is that there is a name given at least to one member within this story, and that is the Lazarus, which is not consistent with other parables. However, I think that there are other matters that we're going to consider as we go through this text that that compel us to, to regard it as a parable, but at the same time realize that there are elements of reality that are being conveyed to us. And so we do not look at it on the one hand, and we do not want to, to over-interpret some things. But on the other hand, we do not want to dismiss what are some important truths that we need to grasp in our consideration of this text. So we have these things that are revealed to us about eternity. Revealed to us about eternal destinies that God has given to us. And so we must respond to these truths. The truths that are revealed to us. How do we respond? And the first, the first truth that we want to consider this morning is that there is an approaching end. There is an approaching end. And that is death itself. As Jesus begins this parable, he seems to be very deliberate in his intent to cast the characters here or to set the stage by placing these two men in places of extreme contrast. One man is given to us, is revealed to us as what we might term as filthy rich. He has it all. His boat has come in. His life is is full. Everything a man could want, it seems, that this one has. He's described here as a rich man and he habitually dressed and purple and fine linen. In other words, he wasn't a man that would go to the closet on, on special days and pull out the fine linen, the fine robes, the fine clothes. It was his habit of every day. He would go and dress in royalty and purple and the fine linen and joyously living in splendor. You know, we have those occasional things like for anniversaries, might have a special meal. And he lived this way every day. A man that just... Wealth and resources just running out of his ears. That's the picture that Jesus gives to us here. A man, certainly we would expect, if a man of such wealth, a man of prominence. I mean, aren't wealthy people prominent? People just kind of have a way of gathering around people like that. A man who was, by all likelihood, known by many. And I think, interestingly enough, He's a man here that is unnamed by Christ. Some commentators will refer to him as dives, which is, I think, Latin for for wealthy or for rich. But we do not have a name for this man. And again, I don't think that we necessarily need to conclude here that this was an actual real-life person, but it would certainly be typical of many. And on the contrast here that Jesus gives here in verse 20... There's this poor man. This poor man. Not just poor. Here's a man who is extremely impoverished. 
cures a man that it seems is unable to even to walk. And it says here that he was that he was laid at the gate of this wealthy man. So likely he was crippled. And this man who had sores all over his body. And a man who had simply longed and was content, whether it was received or not, to eat the crumbs from the table of this rich man. Here is a man that's his comfort comes, if you want to consider it comfort, in verse 21. It only comes from the dogs. The dogs were coming and they were licking his sores. How far down do you get? And how far down does a man have to go before he's willing to say, I'd be just content to have the crumbs off this man's table? And so Jesus, again, very deliberately gives us this picture here of one man who is just extremely wealthy. And the other man, by contrast, extremely impoverished. This man, Lazarus, he was certainly a man of no notoriety. He wasn't the man that people were wanting to be around. A man, by and large, unknown to men, but he is a man that has a name. A man that is known by God, isn't he? Known in heaven. Well, as different as these men were, and their circumstances in life, what we're brought to is here that both were, in fact, men. And we see here in verse, in verse 19, there was a rich man. In verse 20, there was a poor man. And then we see the common denominator for all men. That is, verse 22, the poor man died. And was carried away. And the rich man also died. So in spite of all the contrast that can be made between this rich man and this poor man, Lazarus. All the contrast, all the differences in their life. There's this one common bond that they have. And that is that they're both members of the human race. And hence, they both die. And what an appropriate reminder that would have been to the Pharisees as Jesus here tells this story of whatever the luxury of their present circumstances and their present experience, death awaits them. You're not going to miss that. You know, death is batting a thousand. It's a pretty good percentage. And if you want to leave out Elijah, and if you want to leave out Enoch, you still got your way up there percentage-wise. Just in the sheer number of people that have lived and have died. The fact of the matter is, there's no one who was alive 150 years ago that's here today. And the fact of the matter is, there's no one here today, there's no one here in this room here today that if Christ tarries, is going to be here 150 years from now. More than likely, won't be here for a hundred years from now. Death comes. It comes upon all men. So here is the, the approaching end that Jesus brings these two men. Both of them die. It's inevitable. It's inevitable that men will die. And what an utter folly to live 
without any regard or any consideration and no preparation for death. And it's the hazard, potential hazard at least, for those who are blessed with much, those who have much in the way of wealth. The temptation is that we find security. I should say they. The temptation is that they find security. The temptation is to find comfort and to find satisfaction in the things that we own, the things that we can buy, and that we get pretty comfortable here in life on planet Earth in the good old USA. We like it here. We're content here. We're satisfied here. And human nature is that we all just tend to live as though we will never die, don't we? Do we think about dying? For some or another, we just don't think it's going to happen to us, do we? Well, if you're not Elijah and you're not Enoch and Jesus doesn't come, just count on it. You know, the, the old saying, the certainty of, of death and taxes, listen, it's even more certain than taxes. You're going to die. So we have here the common experience of all men. And these two here in this story, no exception. Verse 22, they die. Common to rich, poor, young, and old. Common to religious and the pagan. It's common to those who are good people. Those who we can look at in their lives are just wicked people. They die. It's common to whether you're American or Asian or European or African. It's common whether you're Caucasian, African American, Hispanic, Oriental. It doesn't make any difference. Because the Scripture tells us this. 1 Corinthians 15.22 is in, in Adam all die. And all of us, all men, all women, all boys and girls come from Adam. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men. Because all sinned. In Hebrews 9.27, we're reminded there that you have one appointment that you will keep. It is appointed for man to die. It's an appointment. So there's an approaching end for all of us. For each one of us, even here today in this room, death is certain. Some of you may be familiar with the, the story of the, the man that went to the to the graduate and he went to the graduate and he said well what are your plans now that you've graduated well I suppose I will I will go and get a job now I said well what then well I suppose I will get married well what then oh I suppose I will have a family what then well I suppose that I'll watch my family grow and just enjoy the life of my family and what then well I suppose then that I will retire and what then well I suppose that I'll enjoy a few years of retirement and what then well I suppose that I will die what then? What then? What consideration and preparation have you made for death? The one certainty of life. 
Are you living as the rich man, self-serving, self-consumed, and what in fact proves to be a godless life? You say, well, I'm not living like that. I don't have that much money. You don't have to be wealthy to live like that man did. You can be consumed with yourself. You can be consumed with your own interest. You can be consumed with your own life. You can live a godless life and be in absolute poverty. There's nothing about the situation of Lazarus and his poverty here that qualifies him for heaven. That you can live in poverty and and think, I would have it if only I had these things, if only I had this wealth, if only I had these resources. And if you could, you'd give yourself to those things. So you can live a very godless life and not have any of these things and live exactly like this man did. No regard for God, no thought for death, no regard for those around him. Simply living as though he would live forever. Nothing beyond this life to consider. As we considered back several months ago, the story that Jesus told about the, the rich fool who's, you know, his crops have come in and he's got more than he can place in his barns. What's his, what's his solution here? Well, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build greater barns. And I'll put everything I've got into storage and I'm just going to live and take it easy for the rest of the days of my life. Enjoy life. It's all here. And then the word comes that says, you fool, don't you know that you, to this day your soul is required of you this day? There is much to consider beyond this life. And we all are approaching that end. All of us are approaching death. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into the mentality of thinking, well, it's not for me just yet. I was a school teacher for a number of years. Eleven years. I have, I shared with you before, I know of at least, at least five students, five former students I had. I'm by many years their senior. And they're in eternity. When I was in junior high school, a friend of mine, one of my classmates, was killed as the house was destroyed by fire. I was in eighth grade, I believe. You know, we have no guarantees. I've been in situations. I've been to the funerals of infants. I've preached the funeral of a, as many of you know, the funeral of one who was stillborn. You know, it's, there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees. That life is fragile. And it ends at God's appointed time. But it is as certain for, for all of us. Just as it's been for every other person who's lived on the face of the earth. And is gone. There is this approaching end called Death. The second reality to consider here is the appropriate destiny. An appropriate destiny in heaven or hell. See, Jesus begins to make some distinctions beyond death between these two men. Verse 22, the poor man died. Look at the, the terminology Jesus uses here. The poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That just sounds relaxing and comforting, isn't it? And it is intended to be. Carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the words there, Abraham's bosom, is just a traditional Jewish expression for the place of the righteous. Heaven. 
And then it says in the verse part, last part, and the rich man also died and was buried. That's kind of cut and dry, isn't it? This rich man, he also died. So Jesus distinguished in death between two men. The poor man, Lazarus, carried away by angels to his bosom. The rich man is died and is buried, period. And then we get to what I think are some of the elements where we have to, we have to be discerning here. Some of the parabolic features and elements of this story that we not take some of the t- details of this story too literally as descriptions of heaven and hell as they truly are. And first of all, that's the reason I say that is because we understand that there are, is a condition that we refer to as the intermediate state where those who have died and their bodies are still here. And they've not the resurrection, of course, has not taken place yet. So the time between death and the resurrection of the body, the intermediate state, what's the state there? What is the condition? Well, the best we can discern from Scripture is that those people are disembodied spirits. They're separated from their bodies for now. And we don't know exactly all the details of that of how it exactly fits together. But we have here in this parable, in this story here, references, for example, in verse 22, that the rich man, I'm sorry, verse 23, Hades, he lifted up his eyes, which spirits would not have eyes. There's references there that are made to a finger, taking the finger and dipping in the water and references to the tongue. So these are not things that we look at and we say that, well, this is this is to be interpreted literally because we understand that the condition of those who have have gone on, left their bodies, that they are disembodied spirits awaiting the resurrection. And another reason we have the dialogue here with Abraham. And although it was very common Jewish terminology to refer to heaven as as Abraham's bosom. I don't think there was any expectation that you'd be actually taken into the bosom of Abraham as you have described here. Now, it's a very comforting and very fitting portrayal to those, to those Jews and to the Pharisees. They're hearing this. But I don't think that we need to understand this as a literal picture of what heaven and what hell are like. We have this dialogue with Abraham instead of with God and Christ. And then... It compels, it compels us to distinguish what I, what I would term as figurative and symbolic language that is appropriate to parables. Distinguishing between that and what are definite truths regarding the afterlife that are conveyed by this story. Again, we do not want to press the details here. If we want to study hell, this is not the place to go to get the details. There's some general truths here. But we do not press this text for details of what eternity and heaven and hell is like. Again, we do not want to overinterpret this. But as Jesus resumes his story, his, he speaks there in verse 22 of those who have died. And then in verse 23, he immediately places this man in Hades. Well, what is Hades? Well, it's conveyed to us here. Number one, as a place of torment. Now, there is the Old Testament use of the word Sheol. And the word Sheol can have two meanings. The word in the Old Testament, Sheol, can have a meaning of the place of the departed spirits. It's a a general term 
of those who have died, no reference to, to bliss or suffering, simply the place of the part of spirits is Sheol. However, Sheol can have a more specific meaning. And when it has this specific meaning, it's referring to this place of torment. As we would say, hell. In fact, Psalm 139 can contrast heaven and Hades, or heaven and hell, heaven and Sheol. One place of bliss and blessing, one place of torment. So we see here from the scriptures, from this text, that it is a place of torment and is a place of agony. Verse 23, in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. In verse 24, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this Flame. Verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember during your life you received your good things, likewise Lazarus, bad things. Now he is comforted. You are in agony. And then in verse 28, where he speaks of his five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So it is very clearly a place of torment it is a place of agony. The language of flames is used throughout the scriptures in speaking of eternal judgment. Isaiah 66 verse 24. If you want to jot a few of these down, we can turn here very quickly. Isaiah 66 24. <clears throat> I always hope I wrote the right reference down on this. Then they will go forth and look on the corpse of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. They will be an abhorrence to all mankind. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, from the teachings of Jesus, we see some of the ways that hell is described in some of these scriptures here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Matthew chapter 13, 41 and following. Matthew 13, verses 41 and following. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all the stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In verse 50, the same chapter there. They will throw them into the furnace of the fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 18, verse 8. If your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. In verse 9, if your eye cause you to stumble, pluck it out. Throw it out from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. In Matthew 25, verse 41. And he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation chapter 20.
Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Verse chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 8. For the cowardly and the unbelieving, the abominable and the murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So, this language of the flame throughout the scriptures regarding the intermediate state for those who have gone on outside Christ, but also for the eternal state. So there is a place of suffering, even for those who have died apart from Christ now. There seems to be, from the book of Revelation, a distinction between what they're experiencing now and the ultimate, when the final judgment being cast into the lake of fire that says in Hades itself will be cast into the lake of fire. It's a place of torment and agony. Is there a literal flame there? At best. At best, it's a literal flame. At worst, it's a terminology that is used to help us to get an understanding of what it's like, but it's intense suffering. Any of you ever been burned? There aren't many pains more intense than by burn. And so when the scripture speaks of eternal judgment in the terms of fire, it is a place of torment. It is a place of agony. It's not a place where you'd be saying, well, I'm fine to go with hell because that's where all my friends are. You'd not be aware of your friends being there. It's torment. And it is an unquenchable fire devouring forever and never. I don't know what type of a flame it takes to inflict pain upon a disembodied spirit. But we believe that there is a suffering that those who have gone on even before the resurrection that they experience now. It's a place of torment and agony. It's also a place of just retribution. Verse 25 Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things, but Lazarus, and Lazarus likewise, bad things. Not his bad things, just bad things happened to him. Now he has been comforted here, and you are in agony. You received your good things. What you esteemed good, those things which you treasured, you live for those things and you live for nothing else. We live for nothing more than that. And you've gotten it. You know, it reminds us of the verse that Jesus says there. For those who hypocrites who pray and those who fast and do these things for the praise of men. He says, you have your reward. Listen, if you lived your life with all of your resources, all these good things you had and you enjoyed them to the fullest, all unto yourself, no thought of God, no thought of eternity, that was a good thing. You enjoyed it. 
But it's over. And it's just. It is just for you to be where you are in this eternal agony and torment. It's fair. It's the justice of God. It's a place of just retribution. It's a place of no return. It is irreversible. Verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. So those who wish to come over here, come over from here to you, will not be able. None may cross over from there to us. There is no return. There is no reversing the fortunes. There is a great chasm fixed. It is a great chasm of God's divine justice and it cannot be crossed. There is no purgatory. There is no, as it's becoming more and more popular in evangelical circles, annihilation. You don't just cease to exist. Or some raised objection, well, to have what you have described here as this eternal suffering, this eternal agony, that punishment doesn't fit the crime. That's overkill. How can you bring such a charge that God would do such a thing, that God would have someone to suffer in agony and torment for eternity? And I would respond to that objection with this. Number one, we know very little of the one against whom men have sinned. This God who is altogether righteous and holy and marvelous and glorious. And you cannot consider the nature of a crime without considering the one to whom it, whom it has been committed against. And so our sins cannot be properly understood if we do not properly understand God. And who properly understands God? Who rightly understands the glory and the holiness of God? And so conversely with that, we not only know little of the one against whom we've sinned, we know little of the highness nature of our sin. And so we can minimize our sin. And it's not that bad. It's not that great. And I say you cannot grasp your sin if you don't understand God. And if there's any place you want to see, if you want to see clearly your sin and the glory of God, how wicked your sin is, you look at the cross. You consider the cross of Jesus Christ. You want to know how bad sin is. Because the fact of the matter is, if sin were not that bad, and the consequences were not that bad, then what Jesus Christ endured was a waste. I'd also respond to that objection with, you have to contradict the clear teaching of the Scriptures. The teaching of the Scriptures are eternal 
agony, eternal suffering forever and ever. And I know that there's the attempt in the modern day, modern evangelical circles to say, well, this doesn't mean this. You know, the attempt is to appeal to exegesis and defend these positions. But it's not a position that can be defended theologically. It's not a position that can be defended exegetically. It's a position that's a philosophical position. I can't imagine, I can't imagine that the sins that are created in time and space would be so evil, so wicked, that it warrants an eternal judgment. I can't imagine that. But we need to imagine that. Because that's what Scripture teaches. And coupled with that, we have to abandon, have to abandon what has been the consensus of the teaching of church history and biblical interpretation for 2,000 years. Now, just because something has been interpreted a certain way for a number of years doesn't make it right. I understand that. But if you're going to buck 2,000 years of church history, if you're going to buck 2,000 years of biblical interpretation, you're going to buck the teaching of Godly, scholarly men who knew what it was to study the Scriptures and come to conclusions. If you're going to butt that, you better do it with good reason. It's called the traditional view. <laughs> That's one of the charges, you know, we hold it the traditional view of eternal suffering. Yes, it is the traditional view for good reason. It's the way that's been understood as the, the clear teaching of Scripture. And finally, I would respond to that objection that this punishment doesn't fit the crime. We need to speak slowly, old man, against the justice of God. Because if it is what the Scripture teaches, and I believe that it is, you need to be careful. You need to be careful in raising your voice of objection against God Himself and His righteousness. Who are you, old man, who talks back to God? So the concern need not be whether 2,000 years of biblical interpretation and has been accurate. The concern need to be if we need to flee the wrath to come. That's your concern. Flee the wrath to come. Because it's a place of torment, it's a place of justice, it's a place of no return. There is no going back. The believers have the comfort that Jesus gives to us in the words of the words of Jesus Himself in John chapter 14. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself so that where I am there you may be also. The apostles also tell us according to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1 verse 25. They're speaking of Judas. It said, speaking of Judas, it says Judas, he turned aside to go to his own place. Judas had a place too. Now, we could say that his place, well, that would have been shoulder to shoulder with the enemies of Christ. Could be. Or it could be, speaking of his eternal destiny, because he did commit suicide. He died. And he went 
to his own place. Jesus' words about Judas were this. The Son of Man is to go, speaking of himself, just as it's written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. How terrible is hell? Jesus said it's better if you're going there. It's better you've never been born. That's how bad it is. So where's your place? Do you have the assurance today that you have a place that's prepared by Christ for His people? Or a place prepared for the devils and His angels and His followers? Listen. You don't want to be wrong on this. You don't want to miss this one. There'll be no mistakes, no appeals, no escape. And for any who might have what I would deem a false assurance, a false comfort, a false peace, let me just lay this before you. If Christ is not your treasure now, don't expect to be where He is treasured above all else. Jesus is the treasure of heaven and all who are there. And if you do not treasure Him now, don't expect to be where He is the greatest of treasures. Death will do some things. Death will deliver us from these, what the Scripture terms, these bodies of sin. Death will deliver us from sin once and for all if we are believers. And we anticipate that with glory. But let me tell you something. Death will not do. Death will not change a heart that is indifferent to Christ to a heart that loves Christ and treasures Him. It won't do that. So the time to deal with it is now. Is Christ the treasure of your heart? Death will not bring about a change in your affections. If you're a child of God, it will merely allow you to express those affections in its fullness and in its purity. Where you'll be able to express your love for Christ as you've never been able to before. But if you don't love Him now, when you die, you're not going to love Him then either. There's an appropriate destiny. And finally, we see that there's an appointed means. The rich man makes a final plea when he realizes that he's beyond help and hope. His plea is that they would send Lazarus to his brothers to go and to, to give this resurrection appearance to Lazarus, this rich man's brothers and to warn them. Verse 27, I beg you, Father, that you would send me to my father's house. I've got five brothers. 
or they may warn them so that they would not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they've Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Boy, he got it dead, didn't it? They will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. That seems rather callous, doesn't it? No. Because God has appointed a means whereby men and women come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And the means that He has ordained is through the teaching, the preaching of His Word. So the responsibility placed upon them is to hear and to heed the words of God. In other words, they have at their disposal, your brothers, they have at their disposal everything that is necessary to deliver them from your fate here. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament scriptures. That's sufficient. That's all they need. That's the means that God has ordained that they would come to him. By the reading to the understanding and embracing of the Scriptures. And so this rich man's failure was to read and to heed the Old Testament instruction. Not only regarding mercy and charity and grace, which obviously didn't demonstrate toward Lazarus in his worldly life. But also, he missed, he missed the spirit of the law, didn't he? You know, after you come to the conclusion that this, this man, if he had any grasp of the law of God, he's much like the rich wrong ruler who came to Jesus says, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know the commands, keep them. Which ones? Jesus lists a few. What do you say? I've kept all these from my youth. He's missed it. You've kept none of them from your youth. Is the reality. And so, this rich man here, he's missed the law. Oh, he's read it. He knows it. He knows about Moses and the prophets. But he's not allowed the law of God to do that convicting, condemning, damning work in his heart. To reveal his need of Christ. His need of a righteousness that comes from God. So his failure was to embrace the means that God had given to him in the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Guilty much of the same. I miss the spirit of the Old Testament. Man, we are the people of God. We are the people of God's covenant. And everything's okay with us. All we have to do is make sure we don't mess up anything and lose it. That's the mentality. And it wasn't until this man was in hell he realized, my brothers, what they need to do, verse 30, what they need to do is repent. They will. Someone from the dead, and they won't. Don't we see that? What happens when Lazarus, the other Lazarus, is raised from the dead? Another response of the Jews was, Wow, this must be God. No, their solution, we've got to kill him too. What was the response of when they, the guards came and says, This Jesus, he's gone. He rose. What's the response? Give him some money. Pay him off. Make up a story. See, it doesn't take the 
the, the amazing, the, the stirring, the sensational. To bring men to Christ, it brings tr- it makes, takes truth. The truth of the Word of God. Brought to bear upon the hearts of men by the Spirit of God. Which is why why we would caution against and warn against such things as in our day of of groups that are insisting upon the, the continuation of revelatory gifts. We've got to be sensational. We've got to do things like speaking in tongues. We've got to do things like this holy laughter and who, whatever else the case, whatever is new coming around the pike next week. We've got to do these things to convince the world that, that God's doing something. Listen. We have Moses and the prophets and the New Testament. We need more than that. You know, it's why I don't become overly excited about churches that have, have adopted such mentalities as these, uh, these judgment houses. You know, to scare people out of hell. Why do we do that? Because we've abandoned the confidence in the gospel. It's not enough to preach. It's not enough to teach. It's not enough to proclaim Christ. You've got to do something to grab them. Yep. You'll grab them all right. And they might stick for a month or two, but you'll lose them to eternity. And the sad tragedy is they go to eternity with their mind with the mentality of, well, sure, I'm a Christian, I did this. There's a word to them and also to us that we must take to heart the teaching of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are sufficient. The sufficient of the Scriptures is what it comes down to. It's what we, we say, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. It's not only the authority of the Scriptures. It's the sufficiency of the Scriptures. We don't need anything else. It's enough. And the Scriptures, with the Spirit of God, sufficient to reveal His will, sufficient to direct men and women to Christ, bring them to salvation, and sufficient that we might live godly lives. We don't need experiences. We need the Scriptures. Lives saturated with the Word of God. So how do you respond to the reality of an approaching end, death, of an appropriate destiny, heaven or hell, an appointed means, the Word of God? Are you ready to die? Are you sure of your destiny? Are you hearing and heeding the words of God? And very simply this, has the reading and the consideration of God's Word driven you to Christ? Has it driven you to Christ? Whatever else it may have done, if it has not done that, you've missed it. It would drive men to repentance, turning away from sin, and faith in Christ, embracing Him as our only hope of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You
for the revelation of these things to us.